0: Colossians three eighteen to 25. Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your el- earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. All right, all right. Continuing our series through the book of Colossians. Uh, One of the great problems of Christianity in the 21st century, in my opinion, has been this idea of easy believism. Churches have been so concerned with their baptism numbers and growing great big large churches that they'll almost baptize anything that moves, which is part of the reason that we have so many kids growing up leaving the faith, and it's probably because they were never converted at all or no one ever explained to them what following Jesus actually means and looks like. When talking about what it means to follow Jesus, they make it sound like a cakewalk. It's easy, all you gotta do is say this prayer and you're in, you're good, you don't have to do anything else. And while it is true that grace is free, that the price has been paid in full, that doesn't mean that Christianity is easy. That following Jesus is easy because it's not. You see, if it were the case, That God were to save you by your works. There would be a limit of things that he would require of you. And if you did those things, God could ask nothing else of you. But if we are saved by grace and by grace alone, there is no limit to what God could ask of you. Jen Wilkins says it this way. She says, while your justification, that is your salvation being saved, while your justification costs you nothing... Your sanctification, that is your ongoing growth in the Lord, will cost you everything. See, Jesus is constantly saying hard things in the Bible that make all of the people around him run away. And the disciples, they don't get it. They're like, Jesus, what are you doing? We had all these people here and you scared them off. They don't get it. They could have helped our cause, they could have given us more money for our cause, they could have funded this. Jesus, you need to be more tactical. Jesus, you need to be more politically correct. Jesus, you need to be more sympathetic, less extreme. And yet Jesus continued to call people to follow him, and he did not cower, helping them count the cost of what it means to follow him. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. Unless you hate your father and mother, don't bury your father, let the dead bury their own dead, he said. Take up your cross, come and die. Rejoice in your suffering. Following Jesus is completely free, but it will cost you everything. But it's worth it. You see, the gospel is more than a message that we believe that gets us into heaven. The gospel radically transforms our lives. The way we think, the way we feel, and the way we live. But so often we'll talk about that, right? We'll talk about how the gospel transforms our lives, but it's up in the clouds. It's theoretical. It's abstract, right? Yeah, the gospel, it changes our lives. but, But what does that actually mean? This morning the text spells out for us in precise language on the ground specifics of how the gospel actually reorients our lives, and particularly this morning how it reorients our families, See, Paul gets first things first at the beginning of the book. He wants us to know what the first things are, the gospel, the work of Christ, the person of Christ. But over these past few weeks, we have been looking at how when you get first things first, then what does that mean? Two weeks ago, we said it means you can't be legalistic. Last week, we said it means that you've got to change. You've got to put on new clothes. And this week, we will see that it reorients our families. You heard the passage read, and I know this passage is one of the more controversial passages in all of the Bible. And here, a man talking about, up here, talking about how wives need to submit to their husbands. What could go wrong? So, I want to be clear that as we look at this text that we do not look at the Bible as merely an ancient book for an ancient time, but instead we see that it is God's timeless word that speaks authoritatively and with precision even in our present situations. Marriage is not just a conversation for married people. A biblical marriage is a proclamation to the world that the gospel is true. Our text teaches us this morning that all marriages tell a story. That your marriage this morning is telling a story to the world, to your spouse, and to your children. The question is, what story does your marriage tell? That's where we pick up this morning. When I was growing up, I had three sisters. All right, now you know what's wrong with me. I had three sisters. And one of the things that we love to do, like most kids do, is we had our favorite stories or shows or movies, and we would always want to get into character and play uh, whatever thing we were into, Ninja Turtles, Power Rangers, whatever. And whenever we decided to play, we would fight over who got to be who, right? Because two of us can't be the same person. You know, we can't both be the blue Ninja Turtle, right? Can't both be the pink Ranger. Not me and my sisters. Right. The green Ranger. But we, we always fight over who's gonna be what, right? And what ended up happening in our families because there's me, my middle sister, and then two twi- uh, twin sisters, right? And so the middle sister always got man she got the short end of the stick because we just kind of said, well, you get the leftover guy, and and then what she ended up doing goes well, I quit, and so we make fun of her to this day for quitting all the time. But we would play these games, we would get into character, and we would we would fight or we would we would rehearse whatever story whatever show, whatever movie we were into at the time, reenacting the scenes. And that is exactly what marriage is. The marriage, marriage is a gospel reenactment. Marriage is designed to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. All marriages tell a story. The question is, what story is your marriage telling? But to understand that, it's important that we have a basic understanding of the history of marriage. All right, in ancient cultures, the story that was being told through marriage was one of a business transaction. Do you remember dowry? ever heard of a dowry? A dowry was a woman's family, a woman's dad would pay a man to take her off his hands to marry her, right? Take her off his hands. And my thought as a kid, as I, as I learned about this was, well, how do they determine how much money she's worth? Is it about how pretty she is or how... Not so pretty she is? Is it more or less, depending on that? Right? I don't, know, I don't know what the answer to that is, but the marriage was a business arrangement between a man's, between a dad, the dad of the girl and the, girl, the, the husband that was going to marry her. But as the enlightenment came along, this changed. We have romantic fulfillment now. It's all about love. And so you have Romeo and Juliet. And it's us against the world just me and you, babe. Or now it's Bay. It's bae. Let me teach you. It's not babe anymore, it's Bay. Okay? Y'all know what I'm talking about? They know what I'm talking about. Y'all may not. But sociologists tell us that actually we've moved beyond a time when marriage has been seen as merely romantic fulfillment. That's not the case anymore. Today, marriage is seen as a consumeristic enterprise. This is important because it's easy for all of us to buy into this type of thinking. Sociologists actually use the term commodification, all right? It's a weird word, commodification. And here's what they mean. It is describing the relationship you have with commodities. So, for example, y'all have your grocery store. For some of you, it's Kroger. And for some of y'all, you say Kroger's. There's no S on the end, all right? All right? I don't know what it came up with. It's not, it's Kroger, all right? But some of you love Kroger's. Some of you love Walmart. Some of you got Aldi, right? You got your place, right? And you go and you, and you know, you know where the bread is. You know. Well, bread and milk, they're always on this. But you know where the cookies are. You know exactly where the, the noodles you want. You know where everything is. And it's got the best prices. You have a relationship with your grocery store, right? And you go there. right? And, 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 and it's, it's your grocery store. But when a new grocery store opens up down the street with the exact same products, the exact same service, but at half the price, it doesn't matter how loyal you were and just because you knew where everything was, didn't matter. You ditch Kroger's for the new place where you can get the same stuff for half the price down the street because it's better. I can get what I need at half the price. My relationship with the grocery store is based on how well it meets my needs. You see, it's a needs-based relationship. My need for cheap groceries outweighs my love for Kroger's. And marriage has become about commodification as well. It's become consumeristic. It's now about meeting my needs. If I could just find my soulmate, then I would finally be complete. I'd finally be happy. But then you get married and your spouse doesn't complete you. They don't make you happy, and then you begin to think, well, maybe I could upgrade. Like the new iPhone, I just traded my old one and get a new one. Bigger screen, better wife. People think they could do a better job of selecting someone who could complete them this time because they've learned a few things. They made a poor choice the first time, but now they'll get it right. They get married again, and the cycle continues, and they continue looking for someone who can finally meet their needs. See, maybe you're thinking, do people really think that? Is that really, is that true of me? There's an excerpt from a New York Times article entitled, The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage. She writes, the notion that the best marriages are those that bring satisfaction to the individual may seem counterintuitive. After all, isn't marriage supposed to be about putting the relationship first? Not anymore. For centuries, marriage was viewed as an economic or social institution, and the emotional and intellectual needs of spouses were secondary to the survival of the marriage itself. But in modern relationships, people are looking for a partnership, and they want partners who make their lives more interesting, who help each other attain value goals. You see, marriage in the church is often seen as meeting each other's needs. And it plays out in the attitude I'll meet your needs only when you meet mine. I'll do the things you want me to do when you do the things I need you to do. I'll only serve you if you serve me. It's about personal fulfillment. If you are single and you're tempted to think, if only I could marry the right person, then I would be happy. If you are married, Maybe you think if I would have married the right person, things would have been better off. But here's what one theologian writes. Destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment, necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for you out there to marry, and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. The moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect of marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we will always marry the wrong person. We always marry the wrong person. You see, there are no perfect people who will complete you. You remember the famous line from Jerry Maguire, right? Y'all don't. Y'all have never seen the movie. But y'all remember the famous line. Tom Cruise tells Renee, you complete me. but a spouse isn't designed to complete you. You have a God-sized hole in your heart and what you have done is taken your spouse and tried to fill it. And you have put a Godhood-sized burden on your spouse that they cannot and were not meant to fill. See, the culture says that marriage is ultimately about you and your needs, but the Bible says that marriage is not ultimately about you, it's ultimately about Jesus. Marriage is not a business transaction. Marriage is not romantic fulfillment. It's not a consumeristic enterprise. Marriage is a covenant relationship, a relationship that mirrors our relationship with God. A marriage is about the gospel. You see, marriage is designed to reenact the gospel, to put on a play of the gospel, to tell that old story. And the question is, what part do you play? Husbands, what part do you play? Wives, what part do you play? See, often this text is taught as if the husband is the character everybody wants to play, and the wife is the character that we give to my middle sister. That the wife is the sidekick. But in marriage, there are two people playing two aspects of one character, Jesus Christ. There are no sidekicks, there are no reject characters. Husbands and wives both play Jesus and they play two sides of the same coin, two opposite roles of the same person. So let's look at those. Verse 18, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Someone told me I should put the emphasis this morning on wives submit, but I'm not gonna do that. The sister text, Ephesians 5, elaborates on this and it says wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husbands is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. When I was 18 years old, I got to do my, I was asked to do the, my first wedding by my cousin. And I had no idea what I was doing. I'm just trying to figure it out as I go. And, and we sit down and we're talking about it. And she said, now, I don't know how you feel about this, but I'm taking out obey. I'm like... What are you talking about? Because you know where it says, uh, you know, obey your husband? I'm taking that out. We're not saying that. And so for me, I'm I, there's a part of me that's like, okay. And there's a part of me that's like, righteous indignation, how dare you? And I look at her with stern eyes and I say, okay. It's a difficult text. There was a lady in our last church who, or two churches ago who um. After our pastor taught on this, she came up to him and said, "You know, I got to keep Paul on the straight and narrow on this one." I was like, "Okay." In a time when feminism and empowering women is all of the rage, texts like this seem backward, old-fashioned, and patriarchal. But this is not the case. You see, each person in the marriage plays the role of Jesus. The wife plays the role of Jesus by putting the gospel on display through servant submission. This is not an inferior role, but a role played by Jesus himself. She plays the role of Jesus by submitting to the Father. Jesus doesn't come to us on his own authority, but under the authority of his Father. Though he is equal to the Father, he gladly chooses to submit to his authority. The wife plays the role of Christ in displaying the gospel. Oh wives, the way you love your husband, the way you submit to your husband will tell the world something about Jesus. But not just the world, it will tell your children something about Jesus. The way you treat him, the way you respect him, the way you honor him. And if you do this well, it will be a living picture to them of the faithfulness of Jesus. A wife serves her husband by submitting to him. But to understand this text, we must understand the background. First, we must understand that he's not saying, be clear about this, he's not saying women submit to men. No, he's not saying that. He's saying wives, you submit to one particular man, your husband. God is not saying submit to him because he's your Lord, but to submit to him because submission to him is submission to your true Lord who is Jesus. There's a difference. The husband is not the Lord of his wife, but she is to freely choose to grant him leadership as her devotion to the Lord. To understand this, we have to understand what is going on when this was written. You see, women at the time were property. Men, they owned sheep, they owned clothes, they owned houses, and they also owned their wives. And there was no difference Women would typically get married at around 13 or 14 years old to guys in their 30s, and that's shocking and weird to us, but it was common then. And these women had very few rights. They couldn't testify in court, they couldn't own property, they couldn't just leave their husband and go get a job and live on their own. They needed someone to protect them and provide for them, and they were under the authority and at the mercy of their husband, whether he was kind and loving or mean as a snake. They had no options. So in the first century, this text was read very, very differently than we read it today. Very, it was read very differently than we read in the 21st century. Our culture looks at this text and says, this is oppressive to women and liberating to men. But that's not how first century people would have read it. They would have seen this text as liberating to women and reigning in men with responsibility. Men of that day thought they could treat their young wife any way that they wanted to. There were no rules and Paul was saying, no, you don't get to do that, men. Husbands, you don't get to treat them however you want. Verse 23 tells us that, that submission is in response to the loving, sacrificial service of her husband just as it is with Christ in the church. A wife serves her husband by submitting to him joyfully. No, notice, this is not, hey, woman, give me my chips. The game's on. Hey, woman, I need a sandwich. And her coming in there, Yes, yes, honey, can I do anything? That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what this is. This is, she is responding to her husband's loving initiating of serving her, of laying his life down for her. He's saying, wives, your husbands are to lay down their lives for you, to serve you, and in response, you lovingly submit to them. This is not just a submission where I say, I've got to do it, but I don't want to. And you grit your teeth, but rather it is, God has given me this husband, he is leading me, I will joyfully follow his leadership. It's not a gritting of the teeth, but developing a heart that wants to follow the leadership of your husband. And this does not always mean agreement. You can argue. But it does mean that she should joyfully love her husband even when they disagree. It does not mean that a husband should never be rebuked by his wife because you should rebuke him. It does not mean that a woman should not lead in areas of the home. She should be leading in areas of the home. It does not mean that wives are not as smart as men. They certainly are sometimes even smarter, probably most of the time. It's not saying that they're incapable of leading. They are definitely capable, sometimes more capable. It is saying that God created women with a unique role to tell the gospel story to their spouse, to their children, and their communities. And it does not mean that men are superior to women at all. And this is where, in our culture, we have to step back and say, women, if you are in a relationship where a man is taking advantage of you, where he is hurting you, where he is abusing you, get the heck. you are not, God is not putting you in that situation. Leave. If there's a man who has ever hurt you in any way, you get the heck out of Dodge. However, it does mean that God has uniquely gifted women for this role of helper. It's so fascinating when you look at the role of helper in, in, in Genesis 2, when God calls Eve helper, right, that, that this is a role, this is a word that is only used in the Bible to refer to God. It is a word that when God's people were in a battle and they needed help and they cried out, Yahweh, God, our helper, we need you. It's the only time that word helper is used. That in wartime, in battle, they needed reinforcements. And God is saying that our wives are that. They are the reinforcements of our battle cry. They are sent from God as reinforcements, as a helper to fight in spiritual battles. Wives, husbands are your God-sent helper. So husbands, do you treat and honor your wife as a God-sent help to you? Wives, God has given you a great calling, a calling to be like Christ. And we come not to do his will, but the will of the one who sent him. Jesus came in glad submission to his father. And this was easy for Jesus because no matter how difficult the task his father put before him, he knew he could face it because he knew the love his father had for him. Wives, may the story of the gospel but the story of your marriage tells the story of the gospel of how God's Son and glad obedience came to serve. See, we think, we think because of the 21st century that this is the difficult part of the text. But this is the easy part of the text, really. Of course, I'm a man saying that. But it's really this next part that should be the hardest part for us. It's not about why, not wives submitting to their husbands, but husbands loving their wives. That's the difficult part. In this text, when I was read, that was the difficult part. This is liberating to women. Elevating women as equal, co-heirs. But reigning in men with responsibility. Verse 19 in Colossians says, "'Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them.'" Ephesians expands on this and he says, "'Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church "'and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, "'having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word.'" so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle. Skip down to verse 31. He says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. See, the gospel on display in the role of the husband is servant leadership. The husband plays the role of Jesus who loved his people so much he gave his life for them. Husbands, the way you love your wife is teaching people how Jesus loves us. So husbands are called to love your wives. What a novel idea. What an interesting idea that husbands would be called to love their wives. But in fact, at this time, that was a novel idea. You know, we watch these old movies about, you know, medieval time movies, old movies. And we always see kind of this Romeo and Juliet thing. You know, it's us against the world. It's just love. But that's just in the movies. That is not how it was back then. That is, when you have husbands who own their wives and they view their wives as their property, it was a radical thing to say, you don't own her, you love her. This is not erotic love. That'd be easy for us. This is not friendship love. This is agape love. Wives, write this down and hold your husbands to this. It is unceasing care and loving service for her entire well-being. That is what your husband is to do to you. He then defines love a little more. And husbands are to love their wives in the same way that Jesus loves his church. And how did Jesus love his church? But he came and he gave his life for her. He gave his life for her. Now men hear that and men think, I'd take a bullet for her. I'd take it right here. That's easy. And that is easy. Every husband in this room would probably jump in front of a bullet for you. But what Jesus is calling you to do is much harder than that, is much more difficult than that. He's not just calling you to take a bullet. He's calling you to take a bullet every single day. He is calling you every single day to die to yourself. Your desires, your wants, to put them to death every day. The things you want to do, the things you value, the things that you think are important, you put them to death and you serve your wife. Let me tell you, that junk's hard. I fail in this every single day. I fail more often than I get it right because I want my sleep. I want to watch my game. We ain't going to talk about the game from last week, but I wanted to watch it. I want to watch my shows. I want to work on the things that I want to work on. I want my things and I want them now. And God says, if you're gonna love your wife, you gotta get over yourself and put to death everything that you value, care about, and want to do and serve the needs and for the good of your wife. See, love is incarnational. Husbands, your love for your wife must be incarnational. Now, what in the world does that mean? See, Jesus became human. He became like us he was able to identify and understand what it means to be human he intimately knows our struggles and our challenges and our thoughts so husbands if you're going to love your wives like christ loved the church you have to be incarnational as well you got to get in to her skin and understand her world you got to understand her hopes and her fears and her wants her worries you must understand her intimately if you're going to love her. Lucky the text says that you must love your wife like your own body. You know yourself better than anyone else. You must know your wife that intimately so that you might anticipate and understand how to love her well. well guys, I hate to tell you this, but to love her well means you've got to listen. Not just hear her. Listen. And let me tell you this. Not fix the problem. Just listen to it. And don't fix it. Just listen to it. And somehow don't fix it. You just got to listen to it. I don't get it. You don't get it. But you got to just listen to the problem. And and don't fix it. Just say, uh, that is rough. Save you a lot of fighting. Y'all know what I'm talking about. She don't want you to fix it. She just wants you to listen to it. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's one. We got to get y'all a minute and we got to talk. If you're going to love your wife like Jesus, you must be intentional as well. You see, you're not going to just wake up tomorrow and just happen to start loving your wife like the Bible commands you to. Men, our greatest problem, besides not listening well and wanting to fix everything, is passivity. We sit around and let our wives fill the leadership void that we were called to do. We let our wives make the decisions, decide what we're going to do, fill in the void, and we just sit back and say, okay, honey, whatever you want to do. And sometimes that's okay. It's okay to let your wife do that. But you don't do anything. You just sit back and order are just passive. You're not leading your children. You let your wife do that. She makes all the plans. She makes all the suggestions. We just go with the flow. And we think that it's enough for us to just bring home a paycheck. And our job is done. But until you step into her shoes and understand her world, then meet her needs take the weight off her shoulders, you're not loving her like Christ. I read a story this week about a woman who was having surgery on a tumor in her face. And as they took it out, they nicked a nerve that caused her face to droop. And it caused her smile to be off and her not for her lips to not come up to be able to smile. And so when she smiled, it lo- looked like she was kind of, you know, this side's all messed up. And you got to imagine the fear that that would cause. You know, this young woman, this mess her smile up. Her husband looked at her and he said, I think it's kind of cute. And he went in to kiss her on the lips. And when he did, he contorted his lips to meet hers where they were. That's incarnational. Meeting her where she is. Becoming what she needs. So you must understand her fears and hopes and worries if you're going to meet her where she is. It's not enough to be macho man and when you're laying in bed and you hear something out back, go, honey, I've got it. Let me go get my gun. I'll take care of this. Do that. I do that. I clear the house at least once a month because I hear some noise. But you must do more than that. Stop being passive. Stop letting your wives lead. It's your job. You must initiate, you must sacrifice, you must lead. The health of your marriage and the discipleship of your children, husbands, is on you. In the Garden of Eden, when Eve, when the woman eats the fruit and screws everything up, do you know who gets blamed? Adam. Your marriage, the health of your marriage, the discipleship of your children is on your shoulders, not hers. You are responsible. You are responsible. It is amazing. I could quote you statistics all day long of the difference. If a wife comes to church without her husband, you can predict with pretty good clarity the future of their children, which is vastly different if the husband comes. If the husband comes, the whole family will come, and most likely they will stay in church their whole life. But if the wife comes without the husband, it's about 50-50. Husbands, you have a great power, and with a great power comes great responsibility. To quote Spider-Man. But I'm serious. It's on your shoulders. So lead. Here's the thing, husbands. You are leading, whether you're leading or not. You are leading either in passivity or you're actually leading. But whatever you're doing, you are leading. Husbands, let me give you, as I wrap up, a quote from Narnia. A good Brent sermon wouldn't be finished without a good Narnia quote. But this hopefully will help you out. Something to live by. I think it's very helpful. King Loon is telling his son what it means to be a king. What it means to be a real man. And here's what he says. For this is what it means to be king. To be first in every desperate attack. And last in every desperate retreat. And when there is hunger in the land as must be now and then in bad years, to wear finer clothes and laugh louder over a scantier meal than any man on your land. Men, you wanna love your wives and your family well, you wanna lead well, be first in, last out, and laugh the loudest. Be first in, it means you initiate, you lead. You don't wait on your wife to do it, you do it. Be the last out, get the job done. Don't leave till it's finished. Work and serve harder and longer than anyone else. And laugh the loudest. Bring joy to your home, even when times are hard. Show them by your laughter that everything is going to be okay. Husbands, your life is telling a story. A story about a God who came to give his life for his bride. And is your life as a husband and telling that story. You see, a husband who does not love his wife should not demand submission of his wife. And a wife who is not submitting to her husband should not demand that type of love from her husband. They go hand in hand. And when they work together, it is a beautiful picture of the gospel, a beautiful picture of Jesus. Let me just give you this hint. May it be your goal, husbands and wives, to outserve one another sacrificial leadership and glad submission sacrificial leadership not authoritative leadership sacrificial leadership life-giving leadership glad submission two sides of one character you get to play you both get to play Jesus you don't get the reject character you both play him so what story is your marriage telling what does it tell the world what does it tell your children is it telling the story of the gospel or is your marriage telling a much different story, a terrifying, ugly, sad, sad story, or is it telling the story of hope of the gospel? Maybe you're here this morning and your marriage cannot tell the story of the gospel because you don't know the gospel and you've never believed the gospel, you never trust the gospel. You can't be the husband you need to be because you're not in Christ. You can't love your wife like Christ because you don't know his love. Guys, this morning, come talk to me. I would love to share with you the love that knows no ends. Or maybe you're here this morning and your marriage is struggling and you've just been sweeping it under the rug and sweeping it under the rug and putting it off. There is hope for it to be healthy, but you won't get there alone. You've got to tell someone. Whether that's me, a deacon, or a trusted friend, you've got to tell somebody and say, we need help. Let me tell you, marriage is hard. It's okay to need help. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you love us. And we're thankful for the gospel that you loved us when we were wicked, jacked up people. God, would you help the marriages in this church and in this room be marriages that reflect the gospel, that tell the story of the good news of a God who would come to serve us and to lay down his life for us. God, this morning, if there is anyone in this room who doesn't know you, doesn't hasn't been transformed by the power of the gospel, pray this this morning, Father, that you